Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the West Side of Home podcast. This is Dave Steimers. And today, uh, just like our last episode, I want to talk a little bit more about the book of Jonah. And we looked at on Tuesday some of the big um, tough questions on the book of Jonah, you know, a guy that gets swallowed by a fish and spit out, and how are we supposed to read that? And today I want to go to another issue that uh, comes up in the book of Jonah. And I'm skipping ahead a little bit. So if you're following along on Sundays, this today's going to be from chapter four, which we're going to get to in a couple of Sundays. But for you, my faithful podcast listeners, we're going to get the inside scoop. We're going ahead a little bit. So Jonah's supposed to go to Nineveh. He goes the opposite way. He doesn't want to go to his enemies and preach to them. So he tries to run away, gets on a boat. There's a big storm. They decide he's got to be thrown in the, the sea um, to save everybody. Um, fish comes, swallows him up, spits him up. And then he decides he's got to go to Nineveh. The word of the Lord comes to him again and says, go to Nineveh. So he goes. He preaches a short sermon, which I'm going to tell you all about on Sunday. And then miraculously, the Ninevites actually repent. And in chapter four, he starts having this conversation with God because he's upset about it because these are his enemies. And in it, this is one of the things he says to God. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Here's why I ran away. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, we're going to talk all about why Jonah's mad about that, because that sounds pretty good to us in a lot of ways. Um, but you read this story, you, it's, you know, becomes kind of obvious that he's not real thrilled that God is a good God for his enemies. We all like God to be good and loving to us, but when it comes to the people that we think need to be punished, uh, the story changes a little bit. We want vengeance. We want justice. We want everything to be made right. Now, here's the issue that this quote brings up, because this is a quote that Jonah raises from first off in Exodus chapter 34. Here's what Exodus chapter 34 says. And this is um, Moses, and God is passing by Moses and revealing his character to Moses. So it's a really big passage and really famous one. And so as the Lord passes before him, proclaims his character, who he is. It says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Remember a quote. And faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So that part is not in Jonah's little quote. It's what he wishes was in there. Oh, and by the way, God doesn't just let things go. He punishes those who are guilty. And if you read that, he goes, and not just them, but their children and children's children, all the way to a third generation. You have this, this real justice piece of God, which... So Jonah's now writing this and he's going, Ugh, this is what I was afraid of. We get all the love without the justice. And these are the people that I want justice for. Now, here's the problem. So we read through this and we say, uh, yeah, but, you know, regardless of what we want to be true, which is true? Do we get the God of Exodus 34? Do we get the God of Jonah chapter four? The God who not only loves, but then also will punish and not just punish someone who did something wrong, but then their kids and their kids and their kids. Or do we have the God of Jonah that he's upset about that? He doesn't punish people. He forgives their iniquity. He relents from disaster. He turns around. Now, a whole bunch of duff stuff going on here. One is, and if you're a, a modern or postmodern person, as we all are, and especially if you live in the Western world, the Exodus 34 one is problematic for us. 
we get punishment. If you do something wrong, somebody's going to punish you for it. You have consequences. But we don't really get the, and then we'll punish your kids and their kids and their kids. Like your great grandkids are going to get punished for something that you do. We have trouble with that. This comes from a, a time and a place in the world in which they really understood much more than we do. They thought in, in much different ways. And they understood that none of us are just individuals. We're all parts of a whole. We all belong together. And so it was more natural for them to talk about generational punishment. We're, we're all part of the same family. We're all part of the same nation. And so as it goes for one, it goes for all of us. It was less of a problem for them. We're much more individualistic. So we say, again, you can punish someone who's done something wrong, but you can't punish someone who hasn't done something wrong. Like, what did the kids do? What did the grandkids do? What did the great-grandkids do? And so we have a problem with that. Well, it turns out that we're not the only ones because in the Bible, we have some back and forth about this. This is another thing that makes modern, postmodern Western people uncomfortable. The tensions that exist in the Bible. We like to go and just, here's a topic I want to know the answer to me. Give me a black and white, clean cut, easy answer. This is the way it is. This is the way God is. But even the Bible, as it is inspired by God and, and written uh, through human lenses and language and context and all of that kind of stuff, in the Bible, we find that it's okay to have tensions that pull back and forth. And one of the tensions, there's like a zillion of them, but one of them is found here. What about this generational punishment? Is God a God who punishes or doesn't punish? And if so, does he go overboard and punish kids and grandkids and great grandkids? So in Exodus chapter 34, you have that in the Ten Commandments you actually read about this same kind of generational punishment when it's talking about those who make a, a basically idols, carved images that they're going to worship. And those who do it are going to be punished and also generations and generations, which again, for, for a lot of us, it's problematic, really. Like we're, our family's going to be cursed for three generations. Then on the other side of the tension, you have stuff like Jonah, which this whole book seems to be written to say God might be far more merciful and loving and forgiving than you're giving him credit for. There's also places like Ezekiel, another prophet, Ezekiel in chapter 1820 has this verse where it says that when a soul dies, when someone dies, his sin essentially dies with him. And that sin will not be upon the son and the sin of the son will not be upon the father. And it seems to um, break with that tradition of generational cursing, generational punishment. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us waiting in the tension, which again, the ancient people and those who would have been the original audience of much of scripture would have been much more comfortable with saying, hmm, this raises a tension that we're supposed to think about and talk about and discuss rather than just kind of dismiss and say, it's got to be one way or the other. And so if we continue, we see even Jesus addressing this. John chapter nine, I believe. His disciples, Jesus and his disciples, they come upon someone who's blind, was born blind. And they go, the disciples say, well, so Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? So is this blindness the punishment for something he did or something his parents did? So these disciples are picking up on traditions that they found in their own scriptures. God revisits punishment 
upon people for their sins and upon their children and children. So Jesus, which is it? And Jesus sort of lines up on the, the side of the tension, at least in this side, this um, story of the prophets who kind of pulled the tension in the other way. And he says, nobody sinned. And then he says, this is an opportunity for me to show you the works of God. And he heals the guy, right? And shows actually what God is up to is healing people rather than punishing them. So here's an important um, factor in how we kind of wade through some of these tensions and figuring them out. Some people, by the way, if you Google this, some people try and I think really just take the tension away. So they say, well, if the kids... If the kids and the grandkids and the great grandkids, if they sin the same way that their parents did, then they'll have the same punishment. And that's what it's talking about in the one way and not the other way. You know, the verses that talk about generational cursing versus the ones that don't. And I think, I think that's a bit of a cop out. I don't think it does justice to what the text actually says, because it doesn't say that kind of stuff. I think we're rather, um, it's, it's better to stick with the tension than to eliminate it. I think it's more faithful to the text and what's going on. And what I think we should be doing is hearing the tensions pulling back and forth in the scriptures themselves. So what's happening? What is Jonah wrestling with? And what was Moses um, perceiving of God? Well, it's a working out of the love and the justice of God. So the love, the forgiveness, the mercy, the compassion, the God is on your side. And what of the other part? Well, the other part, the, the justice part, the, you know, uh, he's not just going to ignore the fact that there are some really terrible, awful things, is the justice part. Is the, it's, it's not loving if God never does anything about injustice. And that's where we see the harshest um, kind of characteristics of God come out. It's typically when, say, rich people are using their power and their authority and their money to continue to allow people who don't have anything to suffer. Jesus, this is interesting. So Jesus, like all compassion, all grace, all love. I will go to the cross for you. I will die. You're forgiven if you forgive, live in grace, all the rest of it. When does Jesus really get upset? When does he get mad? When does he bust out the judgment language? Well, it's for religious hip hypocrites. It's for people who weaponize the things of God and who weaponize things like, hey, if you're suffering, it must be because God is punishing you or he's punishing your parents through you. And that's where Jesus gets really upset. And I think what we see is in, in Jesus, you essentially see that if, if you want to experience a gracious God, a forgiving God, then be gracious and forgiving. You live in the grace and forgiveness of God and you'll experience it. If you're going to use your religion, your Bible, and weaponize it against other people, because that's what we do with judgment. We never, you know, God's judging me, God's against me. But when we see people doing things that we don't like or that have hurt us, all of a sudden, like Jonah, we want them to be punished. And yes, this is where God should be a punishing God and a wrathful God against them, weaponized. That's when Jesus gets really upset, using your religion or your power or your authority to perpetrate injustice, to keep people down to keep them far from God. And I think that's how he works out that, that tension. Another way to put it would be like this. In 1 John, it says that God is love. This is an amazing statement. God is love, not God is loving. So if we think through the attributes and characteristics of God, and we realize that God is love, we don't say that about other characteristics, like God is anger. We see in the Bible that God gets angry. 
but it never says that God is anger. And the same is true of a whole bunch of other things. But God is love, which I would argue means that that is his essential characteristics and all of his other attributes flow from love. So when God gets angry, it's out of love. God gets angry at injustice, as we've talked about. He gets angry at hypocrisy. He gets angry when people uh, accept grace in their own life, but they won't give it to somebody else because he's loving. And so, of course, there's, there's going to be an expression of anger, but it comes out of his love. But it doesn't work the other way around. God is not anger. He's not essentially anger. And so I would argue that um, all of God's attributes run from the fact that he is love. And I think that's what the prophets were getting at. And that's what Jonah's getting at in the book of Jonah. Hmm, here's what I was afraid of. That ultimately at the very core of God, God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster, turning people away from disaster. That is God at his core. And I think, and this is how I think um, we need to read the scriptures. If we come to Jesus, Jesus becomes the center of our interpretation of scripture. Everything runs through him. Everything builds to him. He's the, the climactic point. He is the clarity of God when things get muddled and we don't see God very clearly. He is the image of the invisible God. We see what we can't see of God in Jesus. And so that becomes the biggest interpreting principle for how we look at scripture. And I think the prophets kind of help pull us in that direction. And then Jesus pulls in that direction as well and helps center the conversation. And not to say that God won't bring justice because God does bring justice. But we start with love and everything else flows from love. And I think that is how we make sure that uh, or how kind of we see God clearly and we don't take it out of context too far in one direction or another direction. Ultimately, where is it that God wants uh, sin to be answered for? On the cross. He would rather take the sin upon himself, become sin. He would rather stand in our place. He would rather give his life to forgive. That's at his nature. The nature of a loving, gracious, merciful, forgiving God. And that's where he wants us to take our sin. And that's where he wants to leave it. And we don't have to. We have choices in how we want to live and what we want to do. But this is, I believe, uh, the best picture of the tension of the love of God and the justice of God meeting in his self-sacrifice. Because he is a restorative God who loves the world. <laughs>